Hello, how's everyone doing today? Let's see. Pretty good, thank you. How about you? I'm doing okay. I'm doing all right. Um, is is that coming in too loud? Is that piercing people's ears, or or do I sound okay? I don't think so. No, I think it's fine. Right. Okay. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Change some of the adjustments so we could have a little better sound, and I'm, I'm trying to make sure it's not too loud. Um, good, good, good. Well, I am doing well. I'm glad you guys are doing well. Uh, I A few housekeeping things to start with. Um, I've been behind on the weekly responses. I, I've started doing those. I'll have those done by Tuesday. So by the end of Tuesday, I'll have uh, responded to all your weekly responses, or at least uh, gotten a chance to read them. Um, yeah, so that, that is that one thing. Uh, so if you haven't done any weekly responses or, or, or you've done very few of them, um, please contact me because it's, it's going to affect your grade probably at this point. So, uh, you know, we could, uh, we could work it out. Just email me. The other thing is, as I said before, Wednesday, I have to go in for a surgery, so I'm not going to be here. I'm going to record a lecture on kind of British history up to this point and theatrical history as well. So this class is going to, it's going to be reversed from our normal pattern. And we'll talk more about the text and the characters today and, and sort of bring in the context on Wednesday. I'm sorry about that. You know, I'd like to give the context first, but, you know, life is difficult sometimes. Um, but that's just how we're going to do it today. I'm trying to give some context about some things uh, at the top. <clears throat> excuse me, at the top here to help us out. Um, another problem Friday. We're going to have to end class about ten minutes early. I have kind of mandatory training, so for this job, um, which is only ever available starting immediately at one o'clock. So, again, sorry about that. We're going to be doing more of um, The Country Wife and a little bit on, I think we have, um, I think we have Kabuki on Friday as well. So there's no, there's no readings assigned vis-a-vis -vis Kabuki. It's going to be just, I'm just going to be talking about it, uh, you know, in a different, a different um, theater style than we're used to. Uh, but hopefully that'll be, that'll be informative. I'll, I'll try and get all of that in, but uh, yeah, this week is is going to beat us up a little bit in terms of time. Um, so I think that's everything I needed to say. Any questions about anything? Um, I was just wondering what the exact due date for the project was. So all the due dates are on the syllabus. It is the 9th of November. Okay, and I was also wondering if you could... Um, I haven't checked the syllabus recently, so maybe you did, but I was wondering if you could post, like, a Word document like you did for the last project, kind of outlining everything. Okay. Yeah, th there is in the directing exercises folder. Have you been in there yet? Yes. Okay, so did you see the samples? Yeah, I did. Okay. I mean, I could, I could write out a, a Word document as well, but it's really just following those samples. Those okay, are almost like models. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so think of those samples there as models. Um, there's the the one thing is the there's one aspect of the exercise um, that we had discussed getting rid of. It's the uh, 
the dramatic struggle worth 10 points. Um, I, I, you know, won't worry about that. I'll, I'll post not to worry about that. Instead, really think to follow those models. Okay, thank you. Okay. All right. And how have people started those directing projects or at least picking out something to do for those directing projects? Yeah, a little here and there. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I forgot about starting it. I don't know if <laughs> yeah, that yeah. counts. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah, I'm, um, it's maybe too early to ask. You guys still have like more than two weeks to do it. Um, but yeah, I was just wondering if it was if it was going difficult or if it was difficult or not difficult. Um, this is the first time I'm doing this assignment, so I'm interested in how uh, what what the responses will be. But um, I will probably ask that question a few more times next week. We'll also have time next week to maybe um to maybe go over things again in a little more detail where people can bring in things that they've been thinking about um good 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 all right so that is that any other questions before we dive into the country wife okay good all right so the Country Wife by William Witcherly uh, was premiered in 1675. Uh, Witcherly was part of a circle of um, writers known, you know, kind of as like the wits, uh, not the university wits. That's the, the early modern period. But they were um, a group of people who were known for being libertines. Uh, known for being rakes, and I think the that influence is very clear in this play. So to start, uh, we're in 1675, and we're 15 years into the Restoration. Does anybody know what that refers to, the, the concept, the Restoration? Okay, so the restoration which occurred in 1660 is the restoration of the British monarch, or I, I should say the English monarch. And that person is Charles II. And so the Charles I, the son of James, uh, who was the person who was ruling when Shakespeare was writing King Lear, um, he gets executed. He gets executed by a Puritan parliamentary army they revolt um well the, the army isn't parliamentary but the rule becomes parliamentary the army itself is is puritanical they revolt um there's skirmishes between 1642 and 1649 uh and they eventually they execute the king and then his children james and charles flee to france and hide out there um they uh, england is a republic for 11 years um uh, however there's certain elements of it that are still um sort of ruled by central authority oliver cromwell are ooh, sorry thought i'd turn that off anyway um oliver cromwell the the puritan ruler 
he dies in I believe 48 uh, excuse me 58 and 58 or 59 and then Richard takes over and um, Richard Cromwell does not have the political skill his father did and what ends up happening is he gets thrown out of power and they invite the son Charles to return to the throne and so Charles comes back he takes the throne as Charles II and the theaters which had been closed by the Puritans um, they they saw the theater as dangerous and there's a history of anti-theatrical writing that begins with the Puritans and then continues other people who are not Puritans pick it up um, but there's a history of uh, anti-theatrical writing and so the Puritans are really down on theater and in 1660 Charles opens up the theaters again he also legalizes women on the stage this occurs in in 1660 as well and uh, Nell Gwynn his mistress was uh, not the first actress the first actress we actually don't know her name um, she's, she's lost to history but she is one of the first actresses to appear on stage um, and becomes very famous for it she's she's painted by all the great portraitures uh, and and uh portrait artist rather um and then we start to see uh famous actresses developing uh the theater itself is different from louis theater remember that louis has to sort of permit everything to happen and while this is true in england england does have regulatory bodies or it did anyway have regulatory bodies such as the lord chamberlain who were able to censor plays still illegal theater was very popular in England and there was a lot less censorship than in France in part because there was a lot more competition uh, in London than there was in in Paris uh, and so you see uh, you know a, a lot of works competing with each other um, but you also see a very very strong push against Puritans and it's not just the push that people like Ben Johnson had you know Ben Johnson hated Puritans he thought they were all hypocrites most theater people don't like Puritans theater is considered anti-puritanical um, but this is a new thing because you had sort of everybody not chained up but, you know uh, uh, stuck in their homes not uh, not allowed to indulge entertainment um, you know Puritans would often even cancel Christmas like in, in Boston when Puritans first came over to, to America, you know, they canceled Christmas in Boston in, the, in part of the 17th century because it was just too much fun, you know, and we, we can't have too much fun. Um, and what ends up happening in the plays written after 1660, a lot of them are like about sex, about pleasure, about bodiness and getting into trouble. They're the, they're the response to being kind of locked up, right, for, for so long. Um, and this play is well in that mold. And so let's start by talking about um, about Horner, uh, our libertine figure, our rake figure. Um, and what is what, what's the deal with Horner? What is he trying to do? What do we learn he's trying to do in the very first scene of this play? He's like trying to get everyone to believe he has some sort of sickness. I think is it an STD? Exactly. Yeah, it's it's an STD. He 
he is pretending he caught in France. He was away in Paris, um, which ironically enough was sort of known as a, uh, you know, a place to meet members of the opposite sex. And he comes back and he says he has an STD. And what problem results from this uh, fictitious STD? He's um, impotent. He can't have kids. Or at least he's telling people he can't. Yeah, he, he's impotent. It's, it's not so much the can't have kids, but can't have sexual relations at all. Uh, and he gets the doctor, the aptly named Dr. Quack, to spread the rumor that he is, he's impotent. He's unable to, uh, to have sex. Now, why does he want that lie to circulate? welcome them into their homes with open arms and he's able to bet all their lives exactly yep um everybody is is very jealous in this world it, it seems like um the bonds of marriage are uh not that constraining and so um the people here are very jealous and it seems like for good reason and if they think horner is unable to be of danger to them they'll leave him alone with their wives their female family members who immediately reveals that this plan is going to work what character does horner interact with that reveals that horner's plan is actually a pretty good one for the intentions he has Is it the fidgets? Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yep. Sir Jasper Fidget, his wife and his uh, his sister, are come along and um, and Sir Jasper kind of mocks him, and you know he has the women come over and and talk with him, and Horner pretends to be really really frustrated by it, um, and the women are uh, disgusted by him. You know, and Horner takes this as a good sign because the reason why they would be disgusted by him would be that they would otherwise be interested in him, right? The only, the only use for a man is, is for sex, you know. So if they're disgusted by him, that means that's the perspective they have. And all he has to do is kind of whisper to them that he's actually okay. And we know from Act 4 that uh, it works out pretty well for Horner. He is actually able to romance both of them and, and someone else as well. Um, so good. So that is, yeah, that's what happens um, right at the top here. And we have a few other plots going on as well. Um, we have the other plot that we're introduced in the first act right away is between um, Harcourt and... Uh, Alethea. 
So what is the, the, the it's actually a, a love triangle, Harcourt, Aletheia, and Sparkish. And so what's going on there? Alethea and Mr. Sparkish are like already together or whatever and he's like her dim-witted lover and at first she sticks by him but in the end she finds Harcourt to be more favorable. Mm -hmm. Good. So they're engaged. Uh, Sparkish and Alethea, they're engaged. And Alethea is also the, the sister to what other character? Pinchwife. Yeah, so it's yeah, it's Alethea Pinchwife. So Pinchwife we'll talk about in a second, but she is um, probably one of the more level-headed <laughs> characters in this play, and she's engaged to Sparkish. However, Hardcourt has, um, has, they're attracted to one another, but she won't do anything for what reason? Because they're because she's engaged, and unlike seemingly, I think every other character in this play, she takes her engagement vows very seriously, and so she wants to um, wants to honor that. However, how does Sparkish feel about his sacred engagement vows? Why is he marrying her? So he's marrying her because uh, there's a dowry. Or he's marrying her for money. And is Sparkish, in the beginning of this play, this is something that changes by the fourth act, um, does Sparkish worry about Alethea with other men? so like he's not terribly into her for her personality or anything about her i don't think mm -hmm. yeah exactly he, he doesn't really care and he actually kind of encourages her to to flirt with other men he sort of likes the idea that he is engaged to something that is um that other men desire right so that's his whole setup um and later 
when he thinks he's mistaken, but he thinks that Horner is is getting his his fingers into his bride to be. That's when he you know, loses his temper. Um, but up to this point, he's sort of he's only interested in the money. He's in valuing her in a particular way, and he likes the idea that other men find her attractive. Um, you know, uh, and he also has no sense that he's going to stop carousing with other women. Now he says this. He's just going to continue on how he was before. So those are our two, two of our plot lines, right? We have Horner, who is setting himself up to romance a lot of women, especially the the fidget family is, is going to be taken down. Um, and then we have this love triangle. Um, what is, we also now have the pinch wife family, uh, the, this newly married couple. So what is their deal? What is Marguerite and Mr. Pinchwife's deal? This guy Jack Pinchwife, oh my gosh, mm-hmm. that I I don't even so his whole thing is that he doesn't want anyone else to get to his wife, but not because he loves her and wants to keep her. I just feel like he just doesn't want to be humiliated. Mm-hmm. But in trying so hard to keep her on a short leash, he actually ends up pushing her away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. So this idea of like romantic love, I think it's there in Harcourt's story. Um, But with with Pinchwife, uh, you know, and this is something we we, even going back to the Roman plays, um, it's a little less clear in in The Braggart Soldier. But in a lot of Plautus's plays, uh, the rope, it would be one example. You have the old man who's, you know, too old for the young woman. It's like a, a mismatch, and so he becomes really, really jealous and does everything he can to restrain her her movements. And that's what's going on here, obviously. Yeah, Pinchwife doesn't want her going, you know, doesn't want her uh, going out, and he's worried that she's going to be kind of easily seduced, um, which she is. He, he's, he's not wrong. She does meet somebody, Jack Horner, who is... Uh, I think his first name's Jack. Whatever. Horner, who is a lot more attractive and is, is a lot more interesting. Um, so good. So that's the story there. And it seems like Pinchwife is always accidentally revealing how um, how many possibilities sexual partners Marjorie Pinchwife could have, right? She's, he's revealing that there are these fun things to do in town and people who are actually interested in her, even though, you know, it, it's kind of done by accident. He, does, he doesn't mean to. He mentions going to the theater and how somebody was admiring her. So, oh, no, somebody was admiring you. That's dangerous. And she, her response is, you know, oh, somebody was admiring me? Oh, that's very nice. You know, she really, she really likes that. Um, great. So there we go. So there, those are our three plots and how they're, they're kind of set up. Um, so let's talk a little bit about now some of these characters and, and how they develop with these plots. And let's start start with Horner. Um, so we'll just say Horner is a, um, a libertine. Uh, he His name comes from Horn. And if you know, like a cuckold, a cuckold is somebody who uh, whose wife has slept with someone else. 
and it's supposed to be horns, right? A cuckold has these horns on his head that represents he's been cuckolded. And so Horner is like the guy who puts horns on your head. He's the guy who sleeps with, with your wife. That's literally what his name means. Um, so he is not only a, a libertine and a rake in the fact that he's pursuing these other other women or he's pursuing other men's wives or he's just trying to sleep with as many women as possible. He's a libertine down and down. And let's talk about what that means. Let's talk about his character. What did you guys think of, of Horner? And even if you say something, you know, you liked him, you disliked him, all of that is, is a legitimate response. Um, I find his character just very interesting as a whole, just because, as you know, you were saying, the fact that Puritans had outlawed theater kind of before this, I feel like, the, like this kind of character was exactly what they were trying to keep from the audience, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so I just find it funny that this is the play we're reading after, you know, these events have happened and this is the specific character that's, you know, being focused on kind of. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. It's, it is quite, it is a response to what's gone on before, right? You know, these things aren't done in a vacuum. <laughs> They're really, they are, um, the royals are really upset with the Puritans and there's the, the Tories are the, the, party the political party uh in in england or the movement at this point um that supports the royalists that supports the royal family and royal control and they tend on the side of kind of um sexual freedom right and then you have the later on the whig party starts to develop they developed in the 1680s and while they're not Puritans, they tend to be more like the mercantile classes. They tend to be um, uh, people whose resources come from their own labor, right? They're, they're starting businesses and things like that. Um, and so either you have the sort of Tory-Puritan split or you have the Tory-Whig split that goes on in this period. Um, but the the Tories tend to be more like the people in this play. Uh, and so there's always what you're going to see in plays like this is there's always um, uh, fewer restrictions on sexual behavior. And there's always, always, always respect for the royal family or the king. You know, I don't think in this play, I don't remember a time when they explicit, expressly say, you know, the king is so great, blah, blah, blah. But that tends to be to be underneath everything. Right. This idea of hierarchy is what these plays are resting on. Um, so yeah, he's sexually free, certainly, Horner. Uh, how does he... So let me ask this in a different way. Um, is his behavior punished in the end or not? Uh, not at all. But I was <laughs> going to say that, honestly, he seems like, personally to me, like a real a-hole, but... Mm -hmm that he's at the same time is kind of portrayed as like the wittiest character you know he like he dupes all these people and in the end he's basically even allowed to just continue living this lie and betting men's wives you know mm -hmm. 
yeah he 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 is certainly he's certainly a bit of an asshole i i i agree and you know more more than a bit um and there is no comeuppance for him uh, this is very different from moliere so moliere is writing you know in the same decade um as we we talked about and uh in, in in Moliere's plays, there's a, certainly a sense of decorum that isn't here. Here there is, you know, here they can talk about sex with a lot more frankness and a lot more openness. But if we start looking at at Horner um, in more detail and, and look at him not just for his uh, his sexual practices, but actually how he feels about people how he feels about the, the people he is he's engaging with let's go to acts <laughs> i can talk act three scene two take a moment there and I'll, I'll read out so this is um they are in the uh the new exchange so this is um probably an area of london where trading was going on uh stock trading and usually they were done in, in coffee houses. So a place where you would you would drink a lot of coffee and you would discuss politics and you would also sell stocks. This is the kind of the birth of, of stock markets. Uh, but he's there and he's talking to Dorland um, and Harcourt, so his, his circle. Um, and Dorland says... Did I ever think to see to see you keep company with women in vain? So without getting a profit, without getting something for it. And Horner says, in vain, no. Tis since I can't love him, he's keeping up the lie of his impotence, right? Since I can't love him, to be revenged on him. Now your sting is gone. You look in the box amongst all those women, like a drone in the hive, all upon you. You shoved and ill-used by them all and thrust from one side to the other. And Dorlan says, Yet he must be buzzing amongst him still, like other old beetle-headed licorice drones. Avoid him and hate him as they hate you. And Horner responds, Because I do hate him, and would hate him yet more, I'll frequent him. You may see by marriage nothing makes a man hate a woman more than her constant conversation. In short, I converse with him, as you do with rich fools, to laugh at him and use him ill. And Dorland, But I would no more sup with women unless I could lie with him, than sup with a rich coxcomb unless I could cheat him. Horner, Yes, I have known thee sup with a fool for his drinking. If it could set out your hand that way only, you are satisfied, and if you were a wine-swallowing mouth, twas enough. Harcourt says, Yes, a man drinks often with fools as he tosses with a marker, only to keep his hand in ur. But do the ladies drink? Warner, yes, sir, I shall have the pleasure at least of laying him flat with a bottle, and bring as much scandal that way upon him as formerly the other. All right, so I'm going to stop. Oh, sorry. Uh, I'm going to stop reading there. Um, so part of this is subterfuge, right? He, he's still keeping up the lie that he's impotent here. Uh, and he's kind of justifying it as as a, a part of his anger that he's still visiting with women because he has to kind of explain why he's spending a lot of time alone with women even though he's impotent. Um, 
But what is the general attitude that this circle of friends has towards society, towards the opposite gender, towards social relations generally? It's very much a question of like, what can people do for them, it seems like. So they're only going to be um, you know, engaged in social activities if there's something in it for them mm-hmm. um, that they want, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's entirely it's it's um, self-involved, certainly, and it's not uh, it's not for social benefit, right? There's a real kind of um, life by negativity here. <laughs> what else do we see? I think his attitude is just really misogynistic. I mean, I feel like I feel like you could argue that Horner maybe just doesn't like anybody. Because he said that he would use anyone he could. But, I don't know, just the way he acts towards women in this play and the way he speaks about women in this play is just terribly, like, gross and misogynistic. That's the vibe I get from him. Mm-hmm. Um, do any of the women that he's he's interacting with, uh, do they... How to, say, how to ask this... Do they get what they want from him ever? I don't really think so. Um, Because in the very beginning, um, when he is explaining to his friends that he's impotent and then they send you know, their wives over to him and then the wives find out that he's impotent. They all kind of like get up and leave. Mm -hmm. Um, So it definitely feels like when you say that this is a period of kind of more sexual freedom and all of that, it kind of feels like yes, but only for the men. If that makes like, that's the the Mm -hmm. play seems to be setting up here. Um, Like if there really was sexual freedom uh all over the place you know this dude wouldn't be lying mm. to sleep with people you know yeah yeah so, the, so yeah mm-hmm. yeah there is there is a sort of propriety set up here um he does i mean he does the the women in this play that the the uh sir jasper's uh family <laughs> members um they leave him because he isn't useful to them right they want somebody to bed and you know they eventually all we find out in in act four they all have slept with him um and that that's also true of of marjorie marjorie is interested in him um for you know kind of uh, uh the potential to have a lover to have somebody you know who isn't her horrible old irritating husband um and so while he does have i I think in this circle it's you know it's that that horner is a part of they do have this sort of anti-social center to their philosophy i mean it seems to all be about power right we don't have that really necessarily with shakespeare political power in shakespeare is um is only one element in the relationships that people have. 
you know, Cordelia is not interested in political power. Reagan and Goneril are, um, you know, the fool has genuine sympathy for Lear. He's not interested in power. But in this play, it seems like everyone is. And, uh, and power, though, doesn't necessarily seem to be political anymore. I mean, nobody, nobody's, you know, you might get a dowry, right? You might get some money out of this. Um, but nobody here is fighting for the throne of Y or, you know, the, the dukedom of X or something like that. I mean, power here seems to be kind of um, being able to move through society easily, being able to get material stuff you like, being able to get pleasure you like. And it seems like Horner and... Um, and the 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 group of women that he seduces, they both sort of get the material thing they both want. Um, but there's there's something about this play. It is really it's really seems to be positing that this is a world based on strictly power relationships. I don't know. What do people think of that? Um, I when you had asked the question if the women got what they want, mm -hmm. I was going to say as far as like getting that sexual pleasure, that attention that they were seeking, they definitely do get that from him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, I really kind of agree. Yeah, yeah, I would. I I've not read this as it is a, a patriarchal society, right? I mean that this it's it's sixteen seventy five. You know that's most of human history. Um, but I I do think there is a lot of um there there isn't a condemnation i would say of sexuality here or if there is it's of everyone's sexuality i think this play does uh i don't want to say celebrate because it is it is it is a rough play right the attitudes are not soft um it's not you know it's not soft and fun uh it might not even be sex positive, um, but it is about everybody trying to get pleasure. And I don't think it's condemning a particular person for attempting to get pleasure. I think the people who are fools, the people who we don't like, the people who kind of suck in this play are, you know, like Pinchwife, who blocks. He's a blocking character, right? And the way the braggart soldier was a blocking character. He gets in the way of um of people's pleasure now marjorie is not marrying horner horner isn't marrying anyone um you know that couple isn't going to become something um but you know it's still a, a type of pleasure that she she could um she could enjoy and we sort of hate Pinchwife for for getting in the way there uh, so let's now switch gears uh talking a little bit about um, Sparkish and the type of figure Sparkish is. So what kind of characteristics does uh, Sparkish have? How would we describe him? Uh, Horner thinks he's a very dull person to be around. Mm hmm yeah, he's dull. So like he's stupid, right? He doesn't, he can't match wits. Um, yeah. So he's, he's a little dumb. Um, 
He's also very much into appearance. I mean, it's, it, everybody here in this play is interested in appearance, but um, Sparkish is especially so. Uh, yeah, it seems like he, like, really all he wants is to be, like, that smart guy, you know, like, be the wit, the wittiest person, but then, mm -hmm. and he even might think that he is, and, and then I feel like it almost even, like, accents how dumb he actually is by him, like, behaving that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he he is um, not very very self aware, uh, and he looks it too. Right? He looks dumb. He um, he ends up getting kind of swallowed up with jealousy. Also, I mean, eventually Horner gets to him too. Um, but here is here's Sparkish. Read read some things about Sparkish here. This is. Uh, Act one, scene one, and we are in um, line 285. And so, you know, Harcourt and Dorland is talking to Sparkish, and Sparkish says things like, uh, No, sir, wit to me is the greatest title in the world. Um, and Horner's response, But go dine with your Earl, sir. He may be exceptious. We are your friends and will not take it ill to be left, I do assure you. Um, may pray, gentlemen, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, Sparkish runs off. Um, and then Sparkish runs back on and he goes, But Sparks, pray hear me. What do you think I'll eat then with gay, shallow fops and silent cockcombs? I think wit as necessary as dinner as a glass of good wine. And that's the reason I never have any stomach when I eat alone. Come, but where do we dine? Uh, and Horner says, even where you will, at Chatelines. And Chatelines was a, a French, like a fancy, fancy French restaurant in the Covent Garden area of, of London. Dorlan says, yes, if you will. Or at the Cock. Um, the Cock was a uh, a tavern. Um, not quite sure where it was, but also probably in the Covent Garden area. Yes, if you please. Or at the Dog and par Partridge. And that was a, that was a, a, definitely a tavern. Um, aye, if you have a mind to it, we shall dine at neither. Pshaw, with your fooling, we shall you lose the new play. And I would no more miss seeing a new play the first day than I would miss sitting in the wits row. Therefore, I'll go fetch my mistress and away. Um, and so what we see there is uh, a concern for a few different things. He's interested in where you eat. Um, he's interested in the particular type of company you keep. We need to be in the company of wits to have witty conversations. Um, and he's also interested in seeing the play. And why is he interested in seeing the play? What reasons does he give? Uh, it seems like he, like he wants to be seen there. You know, he has to sit up in the front row with all the wits and he has to be there on opening night, you know, like otherwise it would be like social suicide. Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. He wants to be in the opening night, and he wants to, exactly, be be with the wits, be seen in the pit, talking, you know, uh, uh, making comments about the play and all that. And so there is a, a a great deal of outward show that a character like Sparkish is invested in. Um, he's what we call a fop. Does anybody know that that term?
wrong, but isn't it someone who's, like, super obsessed with their appearance? Mm -hmm. Maybe? I yep. think. Don't quote me on that. Okay. <laughs> I won't quote you. But, yeah, it, it's somebody who is very obsessed with their appearance, certainly. Sonia, did you have something? No, I just wanted to... I didn't know what it meant either. I was just okay. going to venture a guess and say, like, he's kind of dim-witted, but I think... Rachel's definition was more on the ball. <laughs> yeah, I mean, fops can tend to be dim-witted, but they're they're really interested in the their fashion and their outward show and how they appear. Um, they're very socially conscious. Um, Sir Fopling Flutter was a a very famous character um, played by Collie uh, Sibber later on, and he's probably the most famous fop of this period from The Man of Mode, which almost was the play we read. Um, however, uh, he, Sparkish is in that tradition. He is, uh, typically fops are, um, and Sparkish is a, uh, not, not a full fop, I would say, or, no, or not the most expressive of the fops of this period. Um, but you know, he, he's interested in outward show. He's interested in, in fashion to an extensive, ex excessive sense. Um, they're usually looking towards France for um, for the latest cue to the latest fashion. And so, you know, fops are the people who are kind of wandering around in powdered wigs, saying one or two or three words in French. Um, and if you've ever seen... Does anybody know Oscar Wilde's work? Like, The Importance of Being Earnest? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, well, so those are kind of the, the inheritors of the fop tradition. So if you think of Algernon from The Importance of Being Earnest, uh, the sort of way he talks, the fact that there is there's all of these ways of doing things, like, um, you know, it, it's considered rude to eat this or that, and you have to have finger sandwiches, and, um, you know, all, all these kind of rules of decorum, that's, uh, you know, somewhat mocking the fop tradition. Um, very later on, fops kind of because probably because of Oscar Wilde, fops became associated with um, either bisexuality or homosexuality, and that's not the case in these plays. Even though fops have a very uh, presentational style um, that that Oscar Wilde loved, in fact, the fop is directing his energy towards uh, a kind of sexual conquest. And unlike the rake, who is who wears proudly his pure pursuit of pleasure and his uh, disregard for social norms. Horner and his clan, just, they don't care for social norms. It's, it's silly to them. Um, the fop then pursues his social interests with, um, with his kind of fashion and his, his, um, his right way of doing things, his fashionable way of doing things. And often the fop is not nearly as intelligent as the rake. You know, the rake is ends up kind of winning on the fop. Uh, but yeah, so the, those are kind of um, those are sort of two models of masculinity that are very present in plays like this. It's the Sparkish versus the Horner model of masculinity. Uh, so anything on that? Any? Any other questions about kind of the fop versus the rake, that, that kind of binary? 
I just, I was looking, um, because that kind of interested me, the fact that there is this dichotomy between, like, these two different characters, um, and according to this article, apparently macaroni, uh, was another term for pop in the 18th century, and I felt it important to share that. (laughs) Yeah, it was, yeah, 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 macaroni, but they were, uh, it really kind of, um, the idea was they took their social. Wait, is that why in the song Yankee Doodle when he says stick a feather in his cap and call? It... Oh my mm-hmm. god! Yeah, <laughs> I'm so sorry. My mind was just blown. <laughs> well, that's that's the point of theater class is to you know uh, to blow your mind now and then. But yeah, it was um it was the the macaroni. I think they they took their fashion from surprise surprise Italian Italian culture. Um, and they were, you know, um, I think even more extravagant. But yeah, so that's that is this different model. And of course, we have our third main character, which is everybody's favorite character, Pinchwife, um, who is, you know, the the old man who really has a a wife who's too young for him. It's unclear how how old Pinchwife actually is, but what what's important is that he's. Um, He's wrongly matched for Marjorie. Uh, but good, but we have, oh, we have um, one minute left. So any closing comments? Any thoughts about this play before we start to go? Okay, very good. And uh, why don't we, we close there? I know it was, we'll... It's Monday, so instead of ending exactly at 109, we'll end at 109 and a half. And if anybody has any questions, I'll stay on for another few minutes. If not, um, I will see you Friday.